Hi, with a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere. Used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? A star-filled sky used to be our evening's entertainment. Now it's Netflix, iPads or even a podcast. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. All right. Well, here we are today, tonight, or whenever you are listening to this podcast on Dark Sky Conversations. My name is Marnie Og and today my guest is John Whittle. John, tell us about yourself. It's always better if you you describe yourself and what you do. Okay, sure. Yes, my name is John Whittle. Uh, I work for National Parks and Wildlife Service um, in based in Coonabarabran area, so the central, north, central, west of New South Wales. Um, the Warrenbungle National Park is part of the area that I look after. And um, obviously it's a dark sky park, the first dark sky park in, in the Southern Hemisphere. So um, background, so I'm actually a forester by, by background. I, my, I did my forestry degree in, at ANU, Canberra, and actually did a year at Berkeley in California too as part of that degree, just as oh, an exchange. Wow. So it was really, really quite interesting. It's really good. Um, and then, but I've been doing this job for the last, since about 2006. So, yep. So, And what does that job entail, John? What, what's your sort of daily activity um yeah so it's it's managing the people that manage the parks really okay. so it's a bit of a desk job but yeah so we have a we have a rangers that sort of do look after the environmental aspects of managing national parks and trying to improve our biodiversity and manage pests and weeds and fire and all those types of things that land managers have to do and then we also have a a bunch of field officers that you know get down and actually do the you know the actual work so building the walking tracks and looking after all our visitor infrastructure and actually you know doing the pest work and lighting the fires and fighting the fires and all that yeah. kind of stuff so managing all those aspects of the job as well as keeping you know, people informed about what we're doing and you know talking up as well as talking down i guess <laughs> It, it sounds like a never-ending job, and and with things like you know the drought that that your area was particularly impacted mm. by. Oh, I guess you know most of Australia was really. But yeah, what what yeah? How do how do how do you manage aspects of natural disaster, and you know what 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 things can you put in place to make it easier? Yeah, so I guess we take a risk management approach, like most most people. So and um, you know, one of the one of the big things that we probably are facing is that climate change issue now which so we could probably when I started even to now so in the last 17 years we could probably predict our our um, seasons more so than we can now even only in the last 20 years so our seasons are either longer you know we might get longer summers or hotter summers or milder summers or shorter summers, but it just seems less predictable and the, the actual extremes are, are fiercer, I guess you could say. Or, and so, yeah, I guess that's probably the challenge that we're having is in the past, we would put things in place. We do a hazard reduction burning, 
kind of knew when our fire season was going to be and when we needed to be ready to react kind of knew when we might when our storm period was and we you know we have things in place to manage what issues might come out of storms and plans that we have but that seems to be becoming more and more difficult Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah so do you do I think they call it the mosaic fire burning the first nations principles of are you introducing that sort of fire yeah no we have we have been in there for quite a long time. That, that's part of it. So we kind of break up our our area into different um, sections. So there's asset management sections where we know we've got assets right next door or like our visitor areas where we need to focus on managing the fuels around those a bit more specifically. We call those our asset management zones. And then we've got our fire management advantage zones where we they're bigger areas sort of adjacent to those where we're looking to fuel reduction is part of part of our consideration when we're looking at those areas. Mm. And the rest of it's called land management zone where it's about ecology and, you know, cultural burning and things like that. So that we so that we're really concentrating on the biodiversity and the ecology when we're looking at those areas. So mm. um but overall it's a bit of a mosaic picture in the way we do it. So we're trying to have some areas that haven't been burnt for quite a while, some areas that might have been burnt more frequently, and all sorts of bits in between. And we know we kind of base it on at on the regeneration, you know, native vegetation regeneration. So obviously we don't want to burn before before the native vegetation can get onto another seed set. Because we're, you know, we'll be taking taking those bits of vegetation out of the scenery. So January, we're trying to look at our vegetation and when when it's you know capable to burn again and sort of working out how we can sort of manage those time periods in between. And that's all in, in amongst trying to to um, offset human needs at the park, you know. So when people want to be there and, yeah. and peak periods, and I guess you would have just come through the well, as I as I understand it, Kudabara yep. just goes wild in Easter because it's the yep. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's um, good. Good night sky viewing and good yeah. walking, which is one of the you know one of the most beautiful things to be doing out in the national park there. Yeah, no, we have had a, just a very busy weekend, Easter weekend. Um, lots of people up there walking, and I believe Siding Spring had a pretty busy period too, with lots of people looking to do stargazing. We've got a few discovery activities that involve stargazing at the moment. So in the next couple of weeks during the school holidays, so I'm hoping that lots of people take that up and get to learn more about the night sky. Yeah, yeah. And 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 that's the point of this conversation really is to ask you, what what sort of numbers of people are you seeing coming to the area? Um and and whether it's because of the dark sky or because they talk, you know, are you seeing yeah. much of an impact and much of a benefit to the region or to the park because of the dark sky designation? Yes, we are. Marnie, it's um ever since we were nominated or well, we were became a dark sky park um people are wanting to come here for that reason those you know that it's quite an iconic and a not you know the dark sky park it it really does sound like it's a good place to go if you Mm -hmm. want to see a night you know dark sky so you know it's it's only anecdotal we haven't really there's probably an opportunity to do some sort of sort of marketing study but anecdotally people tell us that we've come out here because it's a dark sky park and we're expecting to see a dark sky and get to see some star, stars and do some stargazing. So, 
Mm. And added to that is the opportunity to go and have a look at Siding Spring Observatory, which is you know quite a place for. And actually, I was at a, I did a tour just recently in the uh, of Siding Spring. I had an American visitor with me, so we, we did a tour, and they the um, tour guide told us that it's still in the top ten for for night sky research in you know in the world as as rated by an independent agency apparently. So, <laughs> and not just the tour guide, yeah. No, that's right. Yeah. So, no, they're yeah. still very relevant. Yeah. Spring, you know, so, which is great to have it right there on the doorstep and as part of the dark sky park. So, yeah. as well as you know, Warren Mungles. And what does that involve for you or or your team? Is there much? You know, I, I guess that the reason I ask this particular question is. Is there extra work involved? Because I get a lot of um, places, particularly around Australia, asking, look, you know, we're, yeah. we're a national park or we're associated with a national park or we live beside a national park and we'd really love to have it designated as a dark sky place. Yep. But everyone's a little bit terrified about what this means. Yeah. You know, does it mean that they're going to have to suddenly do a whole lot more work, a whole lot more administration? Are there a lot of safety aspects that they have to consider, or is it, you know, is it, you know, and and is is the pro better than the con? I guess you know, there's never anything yeah. that's completely, you know, 100% no, that's right. No, mm. no, no, look, the pros are better than the cons. There's a little bit of work, but it's not, it's not onerous. It's definitely not onerous. It depends on where you want to take it, you know. Mm. Like, if you, I mean, there's there's a heap more we could do, and I wish we could do, you know, but we we don't, we're not resourced to do it. Mm. So we're sort of operating at the minimum, I, I, I reckon. So, but having said that, we're getting some great pros, and there's always opportunities for us to look to do to do more stuff. So, the, the main things that we do is we have a couple of committee meetings a year to talk about um, stuff. Um, there's an annual report that we have to provide to the International Dark Sky Association, which happens at the end of the year now. So. Um, so there's a bit of information gathering for that because they they want to want us to keep an eye on you know the the amount of light in the in the night sky at our particular location. So we've actually just got a, a new sky meter put up at the visitor center now, so which is oh, no. for us. So that that you know just little things like that. So we just want to be building on those, but it's not major work, but. You know, if you wanted to, you could do as much as you wanted to and you could get a heap done and we, I wish we could, <laughs> but there's too many other priorities. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it's possibly important to note, too, that the, the park was designated originally as the Warren Bungle National Park, the Sky Park, that, yeah. and that was because it was a very specific boundary yep. around it. And um, and I know that we – so I was part of the team that helped – it to be designated. I know that we took advantage of the very sad fact that the national park had recently burnt yeah. through, and basically all the infrastructure was being rebuilt, so we we could put good new lights, etc. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, that's right. Mm. And yeah, so the Siding Springs included in it now, and um, you know, there's probably opportunities to include more mm. more area within that dark sky park if we wanted to. So I think, yeah. I was thinking about the Caliga the other day. <laughs> Wouldn't it be wonderful? Yeah, look, it, 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 it'd be the biggest dark sky park in the world, probably then, <laughs> possibly. Well, we may even it would even then um, consider turning it from a dark. So the the, the de- designations go from park 
to reserve to sanctuary, and they're all slightly different. But I think we'd, it would almost become a reserve if it was on on, on a bigger size on that sort of scale. So, yeah. So, so if a national park, and this I have done this to you before, John. I've I've had people say, "Who can I talk to?" <laughs> what advice do you give other national parks if they, they they do ring you and say, "Look, we're thinking of this." Do you, you know, have you got any? Um, words of wisdom? well, look, I I I do this to you too. I put them on to you because you know, <laughs> <laughs> because you're instrumental in you know in working through the Dark Side Park, the Warren Bungle National Park, Dark Side Park originally. So, um, so yeah, that's partly. I don't. Yeah, really, that's probably the main advice I give. Have a chat with Marnie first, and then, mm. Mm, well. And is there anything that we could do? Um, so the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance was asked a little while ago to do a report on how could we preserve our night skies yeah. more uh, widely on a national basis. And one of the aspects that we said was, you know, to create every Australian national park, so the um, the big parks, Uluru, Kakadu, yeah. Um, yeah. et cetera, but also the state national parks to actually look at having them all designated as dark sky places. Yeah. And just put a blanket umbrella across them, and, and even if that was just to mean putting in a lighting management policy and you know um, various elements of dark sky um, yep. outreach programs. Yep. Yep. But it seems incredibly difficult to get to that stage, and I kind of wonder what is the op- what is, not the opposition, but what's the the the, tr- the mechanism that would make that easier for dark for, for national parks to do that. Yeah. Okay. So I think um, what you mentioned before, the caution about the amount of work required or the resources that might be required to go into a dark sky park is probably part of the reason why it would be difficult to convince a state organisation to do it across, across their board. Um, but having said that, I think the way, I mean, using, for example, Warren Bungle as an example would be a way to to help understand, you know, what work is involved. And I think across the whole state organisation, it could quite easily be absorbed, pretty better absorbed than what what I'm doing on, you know, on the land basis here mm-hmm. in Warramungal National, National Park. So, um, yeah, so getting to the right people. But, yeah, no, I, I think, um, I think, You've got to time it right too. There's a lot of stuff going on, you mm. know, with each, with, I'm sure, with each organisation. I know here we've just had a state election, so we've got a new minister just starting to learn mm-hmm. issues that we've got. And um, we're looking at doing a first state in Australia to do have joint management of all of our national parks across the board, which is a massive undertaking. Which is taking a lot of our consideration at the moment. So, what would that mean, John? Well, that would mean that we're managing all of our national parks jointly with um, with the traditional owners. Oh, right. Yeah, that would be lovely. Wonderful. Yeah. Mm. Yep. So, yeah. we do it. We do it on about forty or fifty percent of our national parks now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's about putting yeah, bringing it right across. And there's various mechanisms. Various mechanisms in law for doing doing that so there's lots of legal considerations as you can imagine and mm. consultation and 
and that kind of thing. So that's an example of where we're doing something across the board, but it's a pretty big project. Yeah, well, uh, and that cultural um, consultation can often take quite a long time yeah. too, can't it? Just because, and we've got a big state, you know, different yeah. people, different. Yeah, lots and lots of mobs to mm. talk to. <laughs> I think I, I would imagine New South Wales would probably have some of the have almost the most number, the most numerous. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You're listening to Dark Sky Conversations with Marnie Ong. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. So, um, going back to the outreach, you've got a few programs there. What do they What do they involve, and who runs them for that for you? Are they organised by your own staff, or are they out? Um, yeah, external? a couple are. Yeah. So. We, we are school holiday programs managed. We have a school holiday program which is managed um, by national parks. Um, so we have specialists when we can find them who come and do. You know, we'll we'll pay them to do. You know, outreach. So with the tour, the the um, visitors to the national park, and that's really quite popular. That's one of our more popular, um, probably. Um, mm-hmm discovery activities um there's also other stuff that we we are a part of but we don't generally not organize for example star fest which happens in october which is managed by siding spring by anu and siding spring but we also attend and and are involved in that one um i mean we also there's also the opportunity i know and i know you're aware of this money there's also the opportunity for other people who want to do tours in the national park to to um to be able to do that through our Echo Pass program, which is you know it's for people to what all sorts of tours you can do if you want to take bushwalking tours or cultural tours or even you know hot air ballooning or rock climbing or bike riding or or, or stargazing. You know that mm. we have that process. I know it's probably not the easiest process, Mark, because you've tried to go through it, Mark, and had a few difficulties, but yeah, I, I do actually see the value in it, though, and I think that what it does is it puts you as a tour operator in the mindset of from the national park. So I think it's you know it's very easy for someone like me to come in and say, okay, I'm going to run some tours and we're going to do this and this and this and this, but until you actually start looking at the ramifications to the national park or what's involved, um, it, it, it's it, it's only a one-way street, so I think it, it it actually does deepen the the value of the tour, not just to the national park or to the supplier, but to the guest who actually starts to hear and learn a little bit more about the national park as well and and, yeah, and yeah, the impacts. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. yeah, it's not um it's not desperately difficult though. It's just it just gives you an opportunity to put everything down on paper. Yeah. Yeah. Formalizing. And and it also means um you can do it across pretty easily. Not just the national park, the original national park you apply for, but it's pretty easy then to include other places if you want to go to other places if there's opportunities there. So, mm-hmm. which is yeah. Mm. Mm. So, what do you think the future is of the of the Warrumbungle National Park? Do you see more people coming out there now post COVID, or you know what? We, is it good question? There there was post COVID a massive influx and the the American 
fellow that I took around the other day. I don't know if you came across him, um, Matthias, Matthias Schmidt. So he, oh, he I heard he was coming out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So he manages the Cedar Breaks National Monument, I think it's called, So, which is a dark sky park over in Utah. Um, five million visitors a year, which wow. compared to our 40,000 mm. visitors a year that we currently have. But anyway, we were talking about post-COVID. They had very much the same experience. They had a massive influx in visitors, um, people who'd never been to national parks before, um, so who didn't um, quite understand the etiquette, you know, in camping or uh-huh. or, or, or even sort of the geography or distances and then to get there, all, all sorts of things, but had the same issue. So, um, but it was a great opportunity to, you know, to have more people come and visit and learn about, you know, the, their natural environment outside the cities that they live in. Mm. Um, so that happened. So big influx, like we probably doubled our visitor, number of visitors we had in one year back in mm. 2022. Um, but it has dropped back again to a more steady number, which back to our probably pre-COVID numbers, which were rising since the drought and the fire. When we had the fire in 2013, obviously we lost all our infrastructure. We couldn't have visitors. We rebuilt. People started trickling back in and then we got some really good numbers and we dark sky park, sure, another bit of an influx in, in numbers. And that stayed steady until COVID, where it dropped again, and then it's and then it went gangbusters, and now it's kind of back to probably pre-COVID. So, which mm. um, which which include you know which includes a sort of few extra numbers from the Dark Sky Park, and we probably um, are at a point where we need to start thinking about how to do some more marketing and you know mm. keep that keep those people rolling in at that kind of level. So it is one of those sorts of places that people, everybody I sort of toured around um, Siding Spring would say, you know, I'd always start the tour. Have you been here before? And if it was anyone sort of over 50, 60, 70 years old, they'd all say, oh, yes, my parents brought me here when I was a kid. Yeah. And I think that it's just one of those iconic destinations that you want to take your kids back to if you've been there or. Yeah. Um, it is really very pretty and full of information, you know, full of knowledge and, and beautiful, wonderful historical aspects from also, you know, modern and, mm. uh, yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. And, um, yeah, there's lots of people that come back for a second time or bring their mm. kids back. It's really good to see. It's, it's a nice place for a family to, yeah. to come and a bit space. of space. Yeah. Uh, yep. And some. So I, I was going to ask you though, you mentioned campers. Yeah. And I know that there are campers that like to bring their, you know, they, they, they're used to being in the city. They're used to having lights on everywhere they go. They want yep. to have their yep. music and every, you know, every mod con with them. Yep. And these days, you know, your caravan can pretty much take everything as well as the, the you know, the cafe, cafe machine to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. but what about lights? How is that handled in a dark sky place? Where people- yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, we've, we've, we advertise it as a dark sky park. So as so when we're when we're taking their money as such, <laughs> taking their bookies, <laughs> we tell them it's a dark sky park. So that there's you know there's rules around lightning. That doesn't stop us from having the odd issue. Mm. 
So um, we're still working on how to manage that a little bit because we don't really have a presence over, overnight in the park most of the time. Um, there's a couple of ways of dealing with it. I mean, there's more more marking, you know, like we might even do a pamphlet. We're talking about thinking about seeing if we can organise a pamphlet to go to go to people as they come in or whatever. There's also the um, camp host process that we do do in quite a few national parks around the place where we have someone who stays in there permanently, you know, and is the point of contact kind of thing outside of ours uh, as mm-hmm. sort of a bit of a watcher over how things are going. We've tried that in the past with not a great deal of success, but it seems to be picking up, yes, picking up. Um, it would depend on the person you had there, I guess. You know, it's not easy to confront people. No. Especially if they're having, you know, they've had a bit of a relaxing day and they're having a few beers and, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. all those. Mm. And we know that. Right, on it. people's personal space, really. I know you, they've rented it off you, but it's. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, there's but, a lot but, of issues yeah. there. It's about kind of letting them know when they come, you come into a dark spot park, so we're expecting certain. Mm. And it, we kind of do that for all of our camping across the state, you know. You're coming to camp on a national park, this is the behaviour we expect. So we do put that in in the sort of the information that we send to them when they book a site. Mm. You know, you, this place doesn't, you can't have campfires here because of fire or, you know, and you can't have, Spotties shining up in the sky here because of dark sky park, I would think. So, yeah, yeah. so, yeah, it, yeah, it, it's, um, it's good that you've got that capacity to be able to do that in the, individually for each yeah. site, I guess, as well. Yep, yep, yep yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Still a work in progress, though. Whereas our ranger Blake is still keen to do some more work on that front, so, uh, uh. I wonder too, I mean, when we were talking about the Dark Sky designation there, um, Reg Wilson, who has now passed away, was one of the first people to sort of start talking about Dark Sky advocacy in Australia. Mm. And he mentioned to me, he said, why don't you try and have a special area that's specific for, you know, that people pay a bit of a VIP rate to camp Mm. there, but they know, you know, that that this is, you know, it's the best place at the park or the darkest part or whatever. So it was and that way you're not, you know, you're not disappointing those people yeah. who might have kids and might need a little bit extra light. Or well, you're not, you know, cross-contaminating the areas, basically. Uh, yeah. yeah, okay. Yep. Actually, mm. I can think of a spot for that. <laughs> I was away from everywhere else. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I, and I know that there are pl- people overseas that, you know, have these sorts of areas in dark sky places and, and they're you prepared can... to walk in or... Yeah. No, it's not necessarily something that they need to have running water and and yeah. all the mo- you know all the, 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 the facilities there. They just want the yeah. darkest place, basically. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, there the, you go. Check. Something else to put on your list of things to yeah, do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So well, I I think that's fabulous, and I and I'm I'm really grateful to the Warren Bungle National Park to take on that first big step of becoming a, a dark sky place and we had several meetings with you know various different people through all the, through all the organization who we were a little bit nervous about it and as you said they were concerned yeah. that it would be just this massive influx of, of activities to do yeah yeah and, the, the, the mm-hmm. challenge for me is thinking of new activities because the, the idea is always challenging us to you know to keep 
keep the um, keep the dream alive, I guess. Mm. So yeah, I think that's the challenge that I'm finding. Is it what else can we do to make sure we're letting people know about it, and you know, and giving them the um, the experience and the educational the information, you know, that 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 they need, sort of thing. So. Instead of just doing the same old things year after year, that's probably the challenge that I'm in these days. And I think it also goes back to what you said before, though, too, is that there are some dark sky places that have the capacity and the interest and the volunteers, because this is, you know, it's basically a volunteer-led thing to do all those activities. And and they want the people. You know, I, I did a dark sky conversation with, Chris Tuggle the other day and he was talking about the fact that they just had people springing up with new ideas because they want to get involved and because yeah, okay. they've got that where, yeah. you know, not areas, not all areas do. So Yeah, well, actually, I was talking to this, to um, Matthias about this because he asked about an astronomy society in mm-hmm. Canterbury and there was a strong astronomy society, but it's dwindled, and I think the reason it's dwindled is because of technology. Because in the past, scientists needed to travel to Coonabarabran to do their research at Sighting Spring, so we had lots of lots of interest and lots of people coming through. But now, with technology, they don't need to be here. But it's a bit like you and I; we don't need to be talking in the same room anymore. So they're doing their research from wherever, and and that's had. I think a bit of a deleterious effect on, on the society in Kuna and the sorts of people that we have here. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, I, I understand that. I've seen the the town change, and you know, even the astronomers that have worked the, at the site at Siding Spring all their life, who lived there because they could, yeah, uh, yeah. and at maintain their their love of the, of the night sky after they'd That's retired. Right. Are moving out of town because yeah. they can set up telescopes remotely and and do what they want. Or yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah, then the researchers don't have to hang around because you know a few of the people that still live here are researchers that came here and brought their children up and decided it was a great place to stay and retired here, as you say. So mm. yeah, mm. it's yep, yep. Oh. Anyway, I'm not sure what we do about that one, but mine's. I'm not sure that's a problem that you can solve, John. No, no. So, no. <laughs> But it means yeah. that even the astronomical society here, I think, is sort of on the edge of, on the verge of not being around anymore, and that's that's a real shame. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, when you consider that the, the tagline for Coonabarra Brand was the astronomical capital of the of Australia, and it's mm. yeah, it's changing. Yeah. The world yeah. is changing. Yep, yep. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, dark, should... north, dark spot. Dark spot. So yeah, it is. It's true. So talking about dark places, you've got your family out there. Have you got a memory of doing something with them or your own personal memory of dark skies somewhere that, that really takes your heart somewhere? Yeah. Yeah, like you mean in, in the Warren Mountains or elsewhere? Anywhere. You're allowed to say, I, I, you're allowed <laughs> to say elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, look, Western New South Wales I find it's fantastic. I like, love going out there and you know, the dark sky and, so, because it, you know, it's just, you've got that, what do they call it, big sky, you know, you've just got so much horizon to look at when you're out there and um, sharing that, just I've got one of those in laps on my phone, you know, that you can mm-hmm. 
point up at the sky so we can sort of talk about which stars are, are what. But I just thought of a, a better one, actually. I we took our, we have a, an advisory committee. It's part of our legislation that we have a small committee from different parts of walks of life that advise on our plans of management. Yeah. And um, uh, we had, we, we took them up to Solomon Spring and they stayed at the, the lodge up there one time and we I had um, a lady give us a, a talk on the dark sky and, and the, you know, how to look at the stars and that kind of thing. But she did it from a uh, heritage historic okay. perspective. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, it wasn't the science as such, you know, this star's five million light years away and this one next to it's, you know, and that forms that nebula, et cetera, et cetera. It was mm-hmm. more about the ancient Greeks told these stories about these stars. The Aboriginal, local Aboriginal people told this story about these stars. Mm-hmm. The Romans, you know, and it was fantastic. It really was good just to think about the people over thousands and tens of thousands of years that have looked up at those stars and made stories about them. So, and it's an eye opener for people that, because especially people that live in cities, they don't realize that they've, this, that's been there for that long and that makes up their their history and their heritage, you know. Mm, mm. Yeah. We're standing on the shoulders of people that have, you know, the knowledge yeah. that we have of our universe. Then it was fantastic. Yeah, it was yeah. good. And, you know, they tell quite good stories, you know. <laughs> about this, you know, there's some sordid stories and some... And know, fun. Yeah. I can't remember them now, but, you know, I remember at the time they were pretty funny. That's great, yeah. And I think that's the thing is that there's so many different aspects about dark skies that that yeah. people can connect to. So whether you might not be into astronomy, but you are into birds or bats or mm. um, cultural connection. Or... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. It's all those aspects. Yeah. yeah. Well, John, I hope this conversation might get tapped into a few times by people from national parks who might. Yeah. Excellent. Embrace the idea and join join the movement, as they say. So, uh, yeah, I really appreciate your time and, and giving up your answers and your knowledge on, this, on the site and, and look forward to seeing more dark sky places being made with national parks across Australia and New South Wales. Yeah. Yeah, very good. So, <laughs> okay. Thanks very much, John. No worries. See ya. <laughs>